0: nick jacomas and today i'm speaking with dimitris Zagalatus. Demetrius is an anthropologist and cognitive scientist. He works at the University of Connecticut, but conducts field work at different places throughout the world. He studies, among other things, the power and the purpose of ritual in human societies. His new book is called Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. And as the name suggests, it's all about ritual. What is ritual and how is it different from habit? Why do humans engage in so much ritualistic behavior? Why do we attach so much meaning? To our rituals, why do all human cultures that we know of perform a variety of elaborate rituals that they tie a deep sense of meaning and community to? We talked about the psychological function of rituals, why they may have evolved, and what biological function they're serving. We tied rituals to anxiety and negative affective states, and and talked about the idea that our brains, as sort of big-brained, very smart social creatures, might require us to have rituals as a way to mitigate the inevitable anxiety anxieties that come with living in complex social situations and being predisposed to things like anxiety by having that kind of brain. We talked about rituals as a kind of social technology and what actually characterizes rituals? What are they all about and what are they sort of made out of in terms of their behavioral units? Why do people use them and what do they use them for in the different cultures throughout the world? We talked about the birth of civilization, the transition from being traditional hunter-gatherers that were nomadic to sedentary agriculturalists that started building big cities and permanent dwellings. We talked about the traditions and and the rituals that came along with that transition and what that may have had to do with actually the birth of civilization itself. We talked about symbolic cognition and the evolution of language, how the ability to think in terms of symbols, arbitrary characters that stand for other things, is very important in terms of being able to engage in ritualistic behavior, is very important for things like the evolution of language, and many of the things that we often think may human beings unique. We talked about a variety of different rituals that you tend to see throughout cultures around the globe, marriage rituals, death rituals, rites of passage, and so forth. We talked about psychoactive drugs and things like the ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazon. We talked about modern day rituals that are being born um, as we speak, pretty much. We had a really interesting discussion about Burning Man and what that event, for lack of a better term, is and why it's imbued with so much symbolism and ritual. We talked about religion, and what religion is and why religious beliefs and religious practices are often associated with ritual behavior. So if you've ever wondered why humans engage in rituals and do things that seem bizarre or strange or that don't do anything or don't seem to do anything, this will be a really eye-opening podcast for you. We covered a lot of ground that is based on Demetrius' book. We talked about a lot of things and I think we tied a lot of things together in a way that started to make sense of things in the world that often might not make sense at first glance. Why do we do these weird rituals and what purpose are they serving? I think there's actually some pretty clear answers to that question and they became clear in my discussion of Demetrius and reading his book, Ritual. You'll find a link to that in the episode description. So if you enjoy this type of thing, uh, this is a really fun episode. As always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you are listening or watching to it. Also, please check out my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll be the first to know about new episodes, upcoming guests, other research and content that I'm looking at to use for the podcast, and get access to all the long-form writing that I put up for free on my Substack, which tends to tie together concepts and ideas from different episodes with the guests that I have. So if you like the topics that I cover, check out my. Substack and my writing, and subscribe to my free weekly newsletter. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dimitris Zagalatis. Dr. Demetrius Zagaladas, thank you for joining me. A pleasure to be here. Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what kind of background you have?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm an anthropologist and I'm also a cognitive scientist. I'm one of those rare hybrids. Uh, I work at the University of Connecticut, where I'm affiliated with both the anthropology and the psychological sciences uh, departments, and I run the experimental anthropology lab.
0: Yeah, so what... What we're going to talk about today is going to be a lot of um, ideas and concepts that you explore in your new book called Ritual How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Uh, I read it in the past uh, week or so. And, you know, I just want to start by saying I loved the book, I thought it was excellent. I, I've had several guests on who have a new book or just published a book on, and I usually read parts of those books. This is only the second time that I actually finished the entire book because uh, it was just so fascinating. One of the things that was fascinating about it was, um, I mean, you cover a lot of ground and there's a lot of areas where my understanding of something was pretty much turned on its head, or I, I started to see things from a, a brand new vantage point. But you know, as the title suggests, the book is all about ritual. And we're going to explore Lots of, lots of stuff related to ritualistic behavior in human cultures. I thought we would just start with some of the basics here to get people grounded. Can you start off by describing the difference between habits and rituals and what characterizes each of these things?
1: So obviously there are a lot of similarities between habits and rituals. Uh, both involve uh, repetition, something that becomes habitual. But if you look at the kinds of things that people consider to be rituals versus the ones that they consider to be habit, habits. Uh, you will see that ritual uh, involves a sense of uh, uh, specialness, even sacredness. And it, this doesn't have to be in a religious uh, sense. So one way to put it is that uh, habits are one way of taking something useful and turning into a routine that we can execute mindlessly. Rituals, on the other hand, take something that is uh, uh, that appears to be Uh, non-utilitarian or useless and turns this into something special. So a lot of people, when I I ask them to define uh, ritual or to give me examples of their daily rituals, sometimes they'll say, oh, brushing my teeth is a ritual. Now, of course, in the the study of ritual, we say that there are as many definitions of ritual as there are ritual scholars. So we don't all agree on our definition. But for me, my definition, uh, um, you know, uh, in my book, um, brushing your teeth is not a ritual. Why? Well, because it serves an obvious purpose. It is a utilitarian action that you just turn into something habitual uh, just so that you're able to perform it and, and uh, as a tool. Now, if you were to wave your toothbrush in the air three times every morning with the belief that this will cleanse your teeth or with no belief at all, just because it's part of your tradition, now that would be a ritual. And if somebody came uh, into the bathroom w- while you were uh, doing this cleansing ritual and interrupted it, then you'd also feel um, morally upset. That's another thing about our rituals. We we feel very personally invested in them. And the studies show that when, when our uh, rituals are interrupted, um, uh, we feel upset and we find it morally appalling.
0: Mm. Yeah, you make this distinction between habits being causally transparent and rituals being causally opaque. What what does that mean?
1: It means that when I perform a um, a utilitarian action, there's a clear connection between the actions that I'm performing and the outcome. Uh, if I use a knife to uh, to slice a loaf of bread the outcome is very obvious. It will uh, will allow me to eat the the bread. But if I use a ritual uh, knife to cut a a ritual loaf of bread, then you have no way of predicting what I'm going to do with it. If I perform a rain dance, uh, my moving about has no causal connection to rain uh, falling from the sky. And this is a very important distinction. Uh, Studies actually show that we perceive non-utilitarian actions Differently, we perceive ritualized actions uh, intuitively, we see those types of actions as uh, as being socially important. And, and we see them as being special. So there are studies where uh, they've showed people the same type of drink. And in one case, there was a sequence of actions performed, which was very utilitarian. So somebody was cleaning the, the glass and checking it for any faults and then drinking uh, from it. And in the other condition, um, the, somebody was raising uh, the glass and bowing to it and performing all sorts of other ritual actions. And when they asked people whether they thought those two different drinks were uh, really different, well, they said, no, they're not. But then when they asked them to choose one of them, then people would choose the, the special drink. And when they asked them to say whether one of them was more special, they would choose the one that had been ritually acted upon. And especially when they told them that these were the types of rituals uh, or the types of actions, or they didn't describe them as rituals, found in some remote place like uh, Gabon, uh, then they were even more likely to choose that special drink because it carried the weight of tradition.
0: Hmm. So, so habits are causally transparent. They're utilitarian, right? When I pick up my toothbrush to brush my teeth, this is a device specifically designed to clean my teeth. I'm performing an action that serves that very concrete function. But when we talk about rituals, there's this causal opacity, as you call it, and an important component of this is symbolism. The, the ritual is involving behaviors that symbolize something else. And so what is the importance of symbolism in our ability to think symbolically when it comes to rituals?
1: We, well, people have, have called us uh, humans uh, uh, a symbolic species. So symbolism plays a huge role in our lives. And this is one of, those, one of the reasons why a ritual is so tremendously important in our lives. Um, think, for example, uh, funeral rites. If you think from a utilitarian perspective, from a rational perspective, there's no reason why we would uh, even care about taking care of our dead. We would just dump them or, or at best, bury them without any kind of uh, paraphernalia. Uh, but, for example, the, the recent uh, COVID uh, situation, the, the pandemic, showed us how important those rituals were. When people were prevented from engaging in those symbolic behaviors, uh, they people around the world, they, they risked their lives. They risked infection. They risked uh, uh, receiving fines from the police. In some countries, they, they even risked receiving beatings and other corporeal Punishments in order to go there and to perform these symbolic actions towards the people they had lost. And of course, from one perspective, you might think that those uh, death rituals are about the deceased, but they're really not. They're, they're really about the living. They allow us to, to fully uh, express ourselves, they, uh, they allow us to, um, to cope with the reality of, of death. And the way to do that is through these symbolic actions.
0: So, can you just define for for everyone what is a what is a symbol, and how does you know what's special about the uh, the mind of a human or the mind of other animals that allows us to think symbolically rather than in other ways?
1: Symbol is something that stands for something else. Something that that is not is not necessarily an index. Uh, so, if if I see scratch marks on a, on a tree, that that, tell, that might tell me that some some large animal has has been there, that's that's an index. That's very clear. There's a, again, there's a causal connection between uh, the image I'm seeing and something else that that caused it. But a symbol is arbitrary. And by virtue of being arbitrary, that allows us to do all sorts of of things. It allows us to, uh, for example, use these symbols as special and unique group markers, because then uh, maybe all societies have, let's say, wedding rituals or mortuary rituals or initiation ceremonies but our society does it this particular way and there's no reason no intrinsic reason why it has to be done this particular way but the fact that this these symbolic ways of doing it allow us to do it in an infinite number of ways that also means that they allow us to do it in ways that are unique and specific to our own tradition and that has um, a lot of weight has a lot of power and has a lot of implications, far-reaching implications for us human beings and the societies in which we are uh, we live.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so a symbol is something that stands for something else, but more than that, it's different from something like an index. So if I, if I go to the index of your book, Everyone knows what an index is. It will tell me specifically this word or this phrase happens on this page. So there's a, a very clean arrow that points from one thing to the other. But symbols have, they stand for something else, but they have this arbitrary character to them. And I think this ties into things that we'll talk about. You know, when something is symbolic, because of this arbitrariness, you really have to pay attention and focus your mind on the meaning of the symbol in a way that's very different and and I think more demanding than you would for a simple index. And so can you talk about that a little bit more and and start to talk about, I I think you called it the three R's of ritual behavior, rigidity, rigidity, repetition, and redundancy. What are those and how does this tie into the ability to think symbolically? So
1: when we look at ritual behavior across different domains and those domains can vary tremendously. So um, scholars, I'm not the first one to notice this. Uh, For scholars for a long time uh, across separate fields have noticed that there are these very different domains of behavior that have a lot of structural similarities. And those include animal behavior. They include um, certain uh, conditions like obsessive compulsive behavior they include individual ritualization, and they include cultural rituals. All of those things have some structure uh, features in common. And those are things like repetition, rigidity, and redundancy. What does that mean? Ritual actions are repetitive. Um, when Orthodox Greek, uh, Greek Orthodox Christians uh, pass by a church, it's customary uh, uh, to cross yourself three times. Not once, but three times. Uh, That's internal repetition. A lot of rituals, there are some Hindu rituals that involve uh, repeating a a mantra hundreds of times or thousands of times. There is also periodic uh, repetition. So, some rituals, most rituals will be repeated once a week, once a month, once a year, once per generation. Uh, Rituals are also rigid, there's a sense Uh, that they have to be performed in exactly the same way. So there are these patterns of actions and those patterns of actions must not be altered. Even when they are, um, the the general sense is that they're not and and that they shouldn't be altered. So that's rigidity. And of course, we have redundancy. And that refers to the fact that even when uh, ritual actions resemble some utilitarian actions, let's say you're performing a purification ritual. So washing my hands is a is a is a uh, is, is a is an act that has a clear uh, utilitarian purpose, cleaning them, right? But if I have to wash my hands in the context of a ritual, sometimes I might have to do it for hours, or whatever else I'm performing. They they go uh, far beyond uh, the functional requirements of that action.
0: I see. Yeah, and that immediately um, reminds one of you know psychiatric conditions that involve you know, excessive ritualization of behavior. So for example, OCD, someone might wash their hands to the point that they actually cut themselves and wear down their skin. They might, you know, perform something over and over and over again for hours on end to the, to the point where they're actually, uh, it's problematic for the rest of their lives. So there seems to be kind of a, a predisposition for this kind of behavior, perhaps in, in various other animals, but especially in human beings. Is that your perception?
1: Indeed. So we see... Th- People have pointed to this connection between OCD and cultural rituals, and, and we'll get to that. But uh, throughout our lives, or from a developmental perspective, we see that uh, I have a two-year-old, and, and you might actually be hearing some, some of his crying at the, in the background. Um, around this age, uh, you really see that uh, children start to become very ritualized. They have their... They have these obsessions with um, repetition, with routine, with regularity. They want the exact same thing done in the exact same way. Uh, if he sees me uh, taking my, sh- my shoes uh, in a different way, he'll, he'll just object to it. He wants me to do things in the exact same way uh, as they should be done. And we we'll see that this reliably, this tendency towards uh, repetition and, and redundancy and rigidity um, comes when we're very young. Uh, it will often surge in certain times that are related to anxiety. For example, there's, uh, there, um, OCD will, will surge uh, ar- around the time of pregnancy and mm-hmm. early parenthood, and this might have some uh, functional role to play. So typically, uh, when when something when there's a new situation, when there's a new baby, for example, or a new baby is coming. Uh, it's a pretty good idea to be obsessive with rules, with especially with precautions. Uh, it's a pretty good idea to stick to what you know. You don't want to try new foods. You don't want to try new recipes. This is this is the time of of life to stick to what you know. And we see that in other uh, stressful situations, like uh, warfare, like illness, uh, like sports, uh, ritual again tends to to surge. So we see both. Um, uh, in our lifespan, so the times, the periods in our life that that ritual uh, behaviors uh, surge, but also uh, in the kinds of contexts where uh, where it's really prevalent. And there's a lot of uh, discussion about whether the conne- what the what is really the connection between OCD and those cultural rituals. So some people have argued that rituals are just one yet another manifestation of of our of OCD. So it's just a mental glitch. Mm. Um, it, it's your, your hazard precaution system. So your, your, your need to, to make sure that everything is neat and everything is clean and, and that you're safe somehow misfires and you're not getting the feedback that you've actually locked the door and you go back and check again and again and again. So they see ritual as being a, a mental glitz uh, of this uh, sort. Yeah. I Another think- perspective says that um, uh, ritual is, is actually with us. It's a human universal Uh, because it fulfills deep uh, human needs that go back all the way to the beginning, so to the dawn of our species. And that OCD is simply uh, an exaggerated form uh, of this. So ritualization running wild.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely inclined towards the latter view. If you think like an evolutionary biologist about something like this, you notice that, you know, A, from a developmental perspective, children readily learn rituals from others. They also spontaneously come up with their own rituals very early on in their cognitive development. And two, as as you just alluded, uh, ritualistic behavior is universal. So all human cultures have ritualistic behaviors of various kinds. And those two things, I think, together really point to some sort of adaptive function there, because if it was just a mental glitch, uh, natural selection is is quite efficient and uh, glitches aren't allowed to persist for so long across so many different populations. If they're expensive, they will be weeded out by selection. So can you talk a little bit more about this, about the how we think about the potential adaptive value of ritualistic behavior and the fact that it does seem to be a human universal?
1: Yes. So what you described is, is exactly my, my line of uh, reasoning. Uh, it's exactly my perspective. When we see some types of behaviors that are there are human universals, and they're not. Anthropologists uh, uh, debate about human universals all the time. There's rarely any aspect of our lives uh, that hasn't that hasn't been challenged as a potentially universal feature. But everybody, I think, would agree that ritual is a true human universal. We never, we have never known of any human society, whether past or present, that doesn't have these socially stipulated uh, repetitive kinds of rituals, uh, the kinds of behaviors that we call rituals. So it's a human universal. It's been for us for as long as we know. We can find it phylogenetically going back. We can find it in, in other apes. We can find it in other uh, mammals. It is omnipresent throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, typically, we don't expect uh, natural selection to allow these things to, to be as prevalent uh, if they're useless or, or harmful. Now, that's just the starting point. Of course, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't show that ritual is adaptive. The next step for me, and that's, where, that's how I started. That's why I got into ritual studies ever since I was a graduate student. This was the, the question for me. This was the puzzle. If those things are indeed wasteful and they're pointless, as they appear to be to an outsider, then why have they persisted for millennia? Uh, and why do we find them in all human societies? And by doing this research, so over two decades of of doing this type of research, I have been able to identify uh, very important functions for those behaviors, both at the individual and at the social level.
0: And so, you know, one of those functions that I think you alluded to a few moments ago is related to, well, it, it comes up when you think about when you see ritualism and when you see it expressed most strongly. And as you stated, you know, uh, a new parent, uh, wartime—you uh, know—whenever there's uncertainty and the stakes are high, or there's some sort of anxiety-provoking situation, you tend to see ritualistic behavior most prominently. And I wonder if there's this connection here between negative affective states like anxiety that come that, that are most commonly provoked by uncertain and stressful circumstances and ritual behavior. I, I did a recent podcast episode with the neuroscientist Joseph LeDoux and we were talking about anxiety and, and consciousness and things. And you know he basically said, well, anxiety may be the price that we pay for having such a large prefrontal cortex that allows us to plan for the future and anticipate things and, and perhaps even think symbolically. So is, is there a relationship here between uh, ritualistic behavior and affective states like anxiety that our brains might specifically predispose us to?
1: Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought this up. Um, so, in, in recent decades, uh, neuroscientific views of the brain have, have changed. We used to think that our brains worked uh, like computers, or at least like what computers used to be. So, just uh, information processors, input in, uh, output out. Today, we think that our brains work like some very modern computers, and then there's, this is no accident. That's because we've always tried to build computers based on our current understanding of our own brain. Uh, so now computers are all about prediction. And, and our current understanding of the, of the brain is also that it's, it's not just a data processing machine, it's a predictive machine. Some people call it the Bayesian brain. That means that our brain constantly tries to make guesses, to make informed inferences about the future. And it does that on the basis of contextual information, on the basis of prior information, so experience. And this is very important because from an evolutionary perspective, any kind of computational device will inevitably uh, evolve towards this predictive uh, capacity because unless you have, uh, because a computational machine that, that has the capacity to use prior information to learn from experience in order to predict what's going to happen uh, will have an edge. So that's how our brain works. Uh, this might sound too abstract, so let's let's turn into something more concrete. So one. Um, very specific example is our, the blind spot in our vision. Mo- many people might not even know this, but because our optical nerve goes through our retina, there's actually a, a tiny spot in, in each of our eyes where we actually don't see anything that, um, from the optical, uh, from our field of vision that falls onto that spot. And that's something that we don't notice. We have to learn that this is uh, true. And there's a, there's an interesting test that you can do to to prove it. Uh, but the reason we don't notice it is because our brain fills in the missing information, just like it, it does when we're looking at the world through a window that has bars. Our brain predicts what's missing from the picture in a way that we get a seamless picture of it. Uh, another way to uh, uh, to demonstrate this is to uh, to think that, and that's one of the examples I give in my, in my book. Let's say you, you live in San Francisco and you wake up in the middle of the night because your bed is shaking. Uh, it's a reasonable uh, inference that there's an earthquake happening. So you run. your, your instinct is to run uh, out of the house as quickly as possible. But now think that uh, you're living in New York and there's a, uh, there's a train line going by your apartment. So wake up in the middle of the night and there's, there's some uh, shaking happening. The first time you might be alarmed, you might run uh, to the hallway uh, in your underwear just to find yourself uh, embarrassed. But um, soon you will come to know uh, that this is not an earthquake. So your brain will be able to to predict, to infer what's happening uh, based on prior knowledge. And this is how our brain works uh, all the time. It's trying to actively predict what's going to to follow. We see this from, there's evidence from linguistics. Uh, Our brain just finishes sentences for us, fills in the gaps, even if there are letters missing in a word and so on and so forth. Endless uh, examples. Now, as I mentioned, this is a more efficient cognitive architecture, but it does have some side effects. One obvious side effect is that when uh, we don't have full predictive capacity, in other words, when there's uncertainty, when we don't know what's going to happen next, we experience anxiety. We want to be in control. Human beings just our brain craves control. It craves information, and when it's lacking information, when it's lacking a sense of control, when it when there's uncertainty. we get stressed and that's what, when ritual comes in so it's a very efficient mental technology and by extension can be used as a cultural uh, as a social technology in this respect because what it does is it provides our brain with a sense of control a sense of regularity a sense of structure because if ritual is anything it is structure we talked about its features repetitiveness rigidity uh, you know exactly what's going to happen in a ritual there's redundancy you do it over and over and over and over, so it becomes very predictable. Uh, And that gives our brain a sense of uh, control that helps us reduce anxiety. And from this perspective, it doesn't matter whether this sense of control is illusory. Uh, And one way I put it in the book is that our brain did not evolve to be accurate in processing stimuli, it evolved to be efficient. So if this helps us deal with anxiety, Then it's it's something that that will become uh, will be uh, adaptive.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a it's a very interesting idea. If you know certain animal species and especially humans have brains that allow them to think symbolically, that allow them to engage in complex social interactions, you know the 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 networks underlying that are going to be such that you know these aren't inherently complicated and uncertain. Uh, ecological circumstances that such an organism is in right if you have to deal with a whole bunch of people in different relationships it's just inherently uncertain and if you think about emotional states as information states of the bodies right so anxiety you know a lot of people like to think about anxiety as essentially your brain and body telling you that something is unknown something is uncertain and then it biases your behavior to mitigate that it, you know if, if you don't know what's going on and things are at a high uncertainty state, you have to pay attention and you have to sort of bring order and certainty to the situation. And I think what you're saying is the ritualization of behavior is a uh, very common and universal like sort of behavioral motif that acts as a kind of buffer to that anxiety, even when it doesn't actually bring like true informational certainty to the picture.
1: Exactly. And one, one way to put it uh, is that when we look at the animal world, we might from a Naive perspective, we might expect that it would be, uh, let's just say, the dumbest animals that perform so many rituals that are less efficient, less less rational. So you would expect that as we, uh, as we become more and more uh, intelligent, so animals that have a prefrontal cortex, for example, they would they would have no need for these um, uh, pointless actions. They would cut to the chase. They would they would be perfectly rational. That's not at all what we find. If anything, it's the opposite. We see that smarter animals. Uh, tend to be more ritualized, not because they can't help it, but because uh, they can afford to so they have the mental surplus to uh, to dedicate to those sort of mental technologies that allow us in a sense to to outsmart ourselves
0: mm. yeah, and one thing that's interesting is you know we talked about how one way that rituals are distinct from habits is that they're causally opaque, right? The the actions are symbolic; they have this arbitrary character to them. There's there's no obvious reason why the uh, components of a rain dance should be expected to actually affect the weather, and yet people tend to believe that rituals are causally efficacious, that they actually do something. So can you unpack that a little bit? How do, how do we sort of square that circle with the causal opacity on the one hand, characterizing ritual behavior, but the strong belief that people often have that the rituals actually do cause things to happen in the world?
1: Yeah, so it's a very interesting phenomenon. If you, if you ask people, uh, even those in the context of religious rituals, if you ask people whether they think the rituals work, uh, you might get a mixed bag. Uh, If you ask secular people, they certainly are are prone to to saying that they they don't work, they don't do anything. Uh, But in fact, we have done studies in my lab that show that we have intuitions about ritual efficacy. Uh, For example, we did this study uh, where we showed people videos of basketball players shooting free throws. And we showed those videos to uh, athletes, we showed them to fans, and we showed them to people who had no clue about basketball, so they could barely understand what was going on. So what we did is that we showed them these videos. Each player uh, was shooting a free throw. And before the ball, uh, after the ball left the player's hands, uh, the video stopped. So you couldn't see the outcome of the shot. And you had to predict the outcome of the shot. That was the task. And we had two conditions. In one condition, people uh, could see that the player had done a pre-shot ritual, something like spinning the ball or kissing the ball. Those are very common among basketball players. And those were the actual, this was real footage from real basketball games. All of the shots that we showed them were actually successful, but they didn't know this. They just had to predict the outcome. And in the other condition, they just didn't see this virtualized uh, movement. The camera would switch to another angle. So they didn't see the virtual. And we're finding that uh, when a player had performed a pre-shot ritual, the spectators have an expectation that this shot is more likely to be successful. And this effect held uh, for all three of our groups. So for the uh, the naive participants uh, who didn't know much about basketball, for the fans, and even from players uh, themselves. So we seem to have this this deep. And if, if you ask these people whether they believed that these pre-sought rituals uh, actually influenced the outcome, I'm pretty sure they would say no. But intuitively, intuitively we have these expectations and the rituals do something. Um, this is because it's it's very human to think that doing something is better than doing nothing. When mm-hmm. we feel, uh, again, it's it's another way of uh, getting a feeling of control. When mm-hmm. we're when we feel helpless, when we're in the casino, for example, and we're gambling away our uh, our, our car or our house, then there's nothing that you can do about it. It's just a game of dice or the, the roulette, right? You have zero control. Performing these repetitive actions, and that's why we see that. Uh, Casino uh, goers are are one of the most superstitious and ritualized groups yeah. that you will ever find.
0: I mean, this is this is super interesting because when you think about the performance of the ritual and the fact that um, it has this arbitrary character. So, so let's take the uh, the free throw. Um, shooter in, in a in a basketball game as an example. Um, you know, maybe they spin the ball, maybe, maybe they, you know, dribble the ball two times or three times, something very specific. Maybe they do something truly arbitrary. Maybe they adjust their socks every time and then dribble the ball twice and then spin it. You know, what you're basically saying, I think, is on the one hand, this all seems very arbitrary, but when you stop and think about it actually from basically a cognitive science or neuroscience perspective, you're trying to actually perform an action with a goal, in this case to to make the free throw, you're always going to be at a stereotype distance from from you know the the net. Everything is standardized. And you know, when you talk about motor behavior like this, you want to execute it consistently in order to achieve the goal. And by actually performing a ritual, no matter what the ritual is, in the same way every same every time you do this, right before you throw the shot, What you would actually be doing there from a neuroscience perspective is putting your brain and body into the exact same or very similar physiological state. So you're basically giving yourself a constant physiological baseline to work from, and that should actually allow you to become more consistently accurate in your free throw. And if we extend that further and we think about something like the rain dance or some ritual related to gambling where you you, you truly have no control over the dice the same way that you have control over the basketball... Even though there's no no actual causal connection there from doing that behavior, at the very least, you're mitigating the anxiety that's going to be inherent in the situation. And so it's adaptive in either case, it seems.
1: Yes. And we also have to think about uh, about the, the function of stress when we have this discussion. So stress is a good thing, um, at least most of the time or some of the time. Um, it evolved to be a good thing, it's a, it's a very good thing actually. Stress, like pain, they're they're excellent are motivators of behavior. Uh, when when something important is about to, to go down, uh, a little bit of stress will will prepare you for for action. Uh, your body will prepare if it's a fight or flight situation. Uh, your mind will prepare. You will get this, this tunnel vision, this this focus. Uh, but give someone too much stress, and it immediately becomes maladaptive. Especially in, and we also have to think that uh, that our our physiology evolved in a context that was radically different from the one we currently live in. Our, our modern world is much more stressful. Uh, people live in, um, um, many people live far away from their uh, social support networks, their their core family and friends. Uh, they don't have those ways of mitigating anxiety, anxiety that they would have in the past. Um, the the pace of life is, is much faster today. Uh, things like social media uh, also uh, exaggerate those stresses that would have been present in uh, in early societies. Uh, so we need more than ever we need those kinds of ways of mitigating uh, stress, and and ritual is one of those types of uh, of activities that can provide that. So think of professional sports, for example. That's not something that you would have seen in. Um, in early human societies, you would have seen things like warfare, which, which can be very, very similar. So now we have new new needs, n- new reasons to be stressed. Uh, and I think today, more than ever, we rely on, on ritual and ritualization for coping with situations, whether we realize it or not.
0: Yeah, no, this this inverted you relationship between stress level and performance level is very interesting. For those that don't know, the idea is that, Right. Uh, uh, you sort of want a medium amount of stress in order to optimize performance. Um, If you're at a very low stress level or a very high stress level, it's actually going to degrade your performance. You know, Anyone who's experienced performance anxiety has experienced their performance go down when they're too stressed out. And when we start to put some of these things together, it's really making a lot of sense to me. So if you imagine the first game of the season in a basketball season versus the championship game, the championship game is inherently more stressful. And as I I think you pointed out in the book, you know, when, when the stakes are higher in sports, when the game is more meaningful, like in a championship game, you see more frequent and more intense ritual behavior. And it all really seems to fit together, right? If you're in the championship game, stakes are highest, stress level is going to be highest. And you're going to want more intense ritualist, ritualistic behavior because you're going to move yourself from that super high-stress, low-performance part of the, the curve to that more medium-level part of the curve by, by having the ritual actually take down your anxiety levels to that sort of middle middle ground where, where performance is going to be highest.
1: Exactly. And another related thing that you see, which is also very interesting and very telling, is that um, studies show that um, top-level athletes, they actually have more rituals you might expect the opposite to be true. So you might think that the better somebody is uh, in whatever it is that they do, the less stressed they would be or the more they would rely on personal skill and less on superstition or whatever you want to call it. But in fact, studies show that top athletes have more rituals. Why? Well, because they compete for higher stakes. Yeah, so very famous people like Rafa Nadal. Uh, I, I spent in my book, I think, a full page describing his pregame or – the rituals that he performs pre and during the, the game. And it, which, if somebody only described this behavior outside of any context, you would think that this is a medical uh, <laughs> description of somebody suffering from OCD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it seems to work for him.
0: Yeah. And um, so, so earlier, we talked about the three R's of ritual behavior, uh, rigidity, repetition, and redundancy. You also said something interesting that I want you to unpack for people. You referred to rituals as a kind of social or cultural technology. So, so what does that mean for something to be a social technology?
1: It means that groups of people, societies, uh, they take advantage of, of those uh, mental capacities or propensity towards ritualization. Uh, in order to turn them into tools and mechanisms that help collect the goals. So they help people coordinate their actions, they help uh, them bond with each other, and they help them act uh, uh, as one. uh, So they're more efficient teams.
0: And, you know, when we think about group ritual behavior, you know, so ritual behavior is a human universal um, in general, in the abstract, there's always ritual behaviors in every single culture we look at, but they can be very different from each other. Nonetheless, right, there are some common, more specific forms of ritual behavior, especially around things like marriage and death. So, can you, can you, maybe let's just start with marriage? Why is, why are marriage rit- rituals so powerful and so pervasive and common across all human cultures, even though they vary in their details?
1: So this is a very good observation. You will see, if you look at what, how the various rituals, um, the enormous diversity that we're seeing uh, across cultures in, in, in rituals, how they vary and how they're similar, you will see that they tend to vary in their forms, but they're very similar in terms of the kinds of needs and kinds of problems that they address. Hmm. So as you mentioned, every every society pretty much that we, that we know uh, has some form of, uh, of marriage uh, ceremonies. Those are very important because they create a sense of uh, fictive kinship, uh, which in turn allows, well, it's, it's very important for the core family, of, of course, for establishing pair bonds and for helping this uh, couple who, who are presumably going to be raising children together uh, act as, uh, uh, as, as one unit, but they also establish relationships between groups of people, uh, between families. Uh, a wedding ritual doesn't, bring together only a couple they, it also brings together two extended families who now become kin they have this sense of fictive kinship and sometimes this can be uh, explicitly said so when you pronounce somebody uh, husband and, and wife or or whatever uh, you explicitly create this uh, sense of fictive kinship or a final uh, kinship in this uh, in, in this case uh, but by extension you create those Uh, bonds between groups of people. Uh, In my home country, uh, fictive kin networks have been very important as they have been in, let's say, in parts of uh, Latin America and many other parts of the world. There are a lot of anecdotes uh, in Greece about uh, politicians who uh, used to create these fictive kinship networks by baptizing uh, hundreds of children. Um, And by that, I don't mean that they became priests and they Uh, They they just attended their baptism, and and they were the ones uh, uh, performing the ritual because that um, made them godfathers and godmothers. Or they became best men and and best women in in a lot of people's uh, weddings uh, officiating there. Um, And that meant that they had established those kinship ties with all those kinds of families. And by doing that, of course, they undertake certain obligations, which is when I'm in power, I'm going to get your... Your, your kid a job perhaps uh, but that, that also means that they they ensure the loyalty of the uh, of this family so this family is going to vote for that person from now on and forever because they have established this uh fictive kinship uh relationship and this is something that in in a contemporary context it might sound funny but in the course of our of human history that has uh that has been one of the main uh, ways of, of groups of people and, and extended families of relating to each other and history is full uh, full of those examples of how even um, different countries would would change their entire uh, diplomatic relationships based on on, on one wedding of, of, of two royal uh, offspring or how tribes would come together and man- manage to avoid bloodshed by by performing a, a wedding ritual so they, they have been they have played a tremendous role in, in human history.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it would seem that the, the capacity for symbolism and to think symbolically is necessary to um, actually carry out these forms of ritual and to create these sort of fictive kin networks. You know, again, if we think in evolutionary terms, you know, if we think in strict evolutionary terms, animals will um, pretty much always devote more resources and expend more effort, you know, protecting and cooperating with their genetic kin, literally the people that you're genetically related to. But in humans, especially, we have these large-scale societies that we formed. We have these very, sometimes very large non-kin networks, and it seems to be related to what you're just talking about. Even though I might not be genetically related to you with the same uh, distance, the same level of closeness as my actual brothers and sisters and, and fathers and cousins... I can create a fictive sense of kinship by engaging in rituals. And all of this requires whatever the brain networks are in a human being that allow us to think symbolically. And that really opens up the uh, the adaptive gates, if you will, because now I can cooperate with a much larger number of people because I'm not strictly limited to those that I'm very closely genetically related to. Is that how you maybe start to think about it?
1: Absolutely. So that's one of the... the... The main ways of, uh, of, of bringing those uh, cohesive um, effects about is by, by um, promoting what we call phenotypic matching. That means that phenotypes and genotypes, they tend to be highly correlated. So two individuals that look very similar to each other, they're more likely to be genetically related than two individuals who look very different. Uh, we make those inferences all the time, and we're not the only animal that makes those differences. There are studies, for example, uh, showing that uh, parents, especially fathers, they favor children who look more physically like them compared to those who don't. So rituals have um, a host of ways, a host of mechanisms uh, to induce this sense of phenotypic matching uh, in us. Think about the way people take part in a collective ritual. Uh, And when they do, uh, the first thing you see is that uh, those people will tend to look similar because they're all wearing the same clothes, they're wearing the same masks, they're wearing the same uh, body paint or whatever symbolic insignia they might have because they move in similar ways. So they move in synchrony uh, or because they go through the same experiences. And sometimes those can be very emotionally arousing experiences. And again, the people in, our, in the course of our lives with whom we go through the most uh, arousing experiences, so the, the highs and the lows uh, from the happiest day of your life to uh, the biggest tragedy you've ever uh, experienced, the people you share those things with typically are your close family. So by taking a group of people through those experiences together, rituals uh, manage to induce this sense in our minds that we are actually family. And this is why it's all—it's not all an accident that you see in so many ritual traditions, people call each other brothers and sisters.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's also striking that you know whether we're talking about marriage rituals, or death rituals, or rites of pas- passage, the rituals seem to always—not always, but but often and most strongly—be tied to uh, periods of transition in life. It could be a very clear sort of pure biological transition going from being alive to being dead. It could be a social transition, like going from being single to being married, or it could be a developmental transition, like entering adolescence and becoming reproductively viable. But what they all have in common is they're the these kind of uh, developmental social transition points, which are going to come with a lot of change and presumably a lot of uncertainty, and they're all highly ritualized. So how do you start to think about the fact that that it's these sort of developmental transition points where we see ritualization the most. Does that tie back into what we were talking about previously about uncertainty and change and anxiety mitigation?
1: Absolutely. So again, it's no accident that um, most human societies have um, these sorts of rite of passage, as they're called, that mark transitions from one stage to another. So you're you're now you're no longer a child. You're now an adult. Uh, you're no longer single. You're married. Uh, you're retired. Uh, you're divorced, you're, you're dead. Um, transitions tend to be uh, long, stressful, and painful. You don't become a child, an adult from one day to another. It's a long process. It involves a lot of uncertainty. Uh, uh, it's, it's one of the most challenging periods of our life, adolescence, uh, for example, uh, from the hormonal level to the, to the psychological uh, level. So what these rituals do is that they provide a, a, a clear demarcation There's a clear passage, there's a a clear moment in time where you go, you walk into this ritual as as one type of person, and you walk out as a different type of person. And this is what anthropologist Arnold van Hennep has uh, called rites of passage. And uh, he sees those as having three different uh, components, three parts. All kinds of rites of passage can be seen as this. In the first part, um, you walk into the ritual uh, and you shed your previous identity. Uh, you see it, and this can be done symbolically in many different ways. You move to a different place, you shave your head, you uh, give up your hair or your clothes or uh, your name, uh, and then you go into a stage that is called the liminal stage. And this is the stage where you're, you're between and betwixt. Uh, so you're neither a boy nor a man. You're neither, during a wedding ceremony, you're sort of neither single nor married. And uh, until uh, a child has been named in some traditions, they're not really considered to be alive. Until the the proper funerary rites have been performed, somebody is not considered to be an ancestor, and so on and so forth. So that's the third stage. When you come out of this ritual, you now have a new identity. You might be often given a new name. Uh, You might be given new clothes. You might have a, a new title, but you're a different person. And everybody else knows that and will treat you as a different person. You come out and now you're a man, now you're a woman. Um, you're an adult, you're, you're a married couple. Uh, people are not going to approach you sexually, they're not supposed to, uh, and everything else that this, that this implies.
0: And so, one thing I want you to talk about now is how rituals work in the sense that, you know, I, I think, you know, we've hinted at it quite a bit, but, you know, to what extent are rituals engineered? To what extent, you know, are people sitting down and saying, "We need a ritual for something. It needs to serve this kind of purpose," and we're going to come up with some sequence of things that people will do at this particular time? Versus how how much do they evolve organically?
1: There's clearly a mix of both, and from there's no doubt in my mind that rituals people attempt attempt to engineer rituals all the time. They do it in in contemporary, let's say, corporate team building uh, rituals and they've done, they've done it throughout history. But at the same time, there's a, there's a select, selective pressure, and the rituals that will survive, they're the ones that, are, that actually make it through that, that, that pressure, through that process of selection. Uh, every day, there will be thousands uh, of rituals that are invented uh, throughout the world. Uh, very few of them will, will survive. And a lot of the time you will see that even when they try to engineer a ritual, people the first, their first inclination is to, to find a different ritual that has already worked in some context to, to refer to a particular uh, tradition. And even when they make something uh, they make up a new ritual, they will often intentionally try to tie it to tradition, to make it look like it's older, to make, to give it this gravitas that uh, the tradition uh, has. But yeah, yeah, for the most part, I think that the ritual that we see around us today, um, there, there, there might be just slight uh, variations of of, uh, of rituals that have survived for thousands of years and have been selected through a process of cultural selection.
0: Yeah, so I think what you're saying is that, yes, we, we engineer rituals all the time. We consciously put them together, at least to some extent, and this is quite common, but there's a selection process here. And, and again, by analogy with biological evolution, right? the way it works is evolution creates an overabundance of things. There's variation in that abundance and you don't know what's going to work ahead of time. You just have to use it and you know you weed out the things that don't work through a natural selection process and you retain the things that do work. So I think what you're saying is we engineer new rituals all the time. Most of them don't really make the cut. They don't do the thing that, that, that we need them to do. They don't have the adaptive value that um, some rituals do. And so there is this organic selection process, and you end up with ri- um, rituals that persist that that kind of do have this arbitrary character because uh, we didn't know which ones were going to work ahead of time.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you can see this in, in many different domains of, of life. Like right? I'm sure that if you if you look at how uh, different culinary recipes work what are the most some of the most popular dishes around the world of course at some point every recipe has 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 uh, been engineered uh, but then only the ones that are that are the most popular will survive
0: and so I think you know this is starting to bring me to thinking about okay when we think about the birth of new rituals and we think about the selection of ones that work and we think about where rituals come from and how they manifest in different kinds of societies, right? So large-scale sedentary agricultural society, you know, what we typically call a modern civilization. And then you, you can also think about them in the context of uh, traditional hunter-gatherer societies. And this was a fascinating part of the book for me because this was this is one of those places where my understanding of certain things got turned sideways or even completely upside down. So when we think about when we think about the transition from hunter gatherer to agricultural societies small bands of people you know living off the land in relatively small groups and then the large scale societies that we call modern civilizations characterized by you know agriculture and very very large numbers of people and farming and all of this you know the standard view that i think most people have is well Civilization's is an improvement, right? Things got better. Um, when we went from being nomadic traditional hunter-gatherers to sedentary farmers who could create surpluses of food and raise animals and create what became modern civilization, well, obviously things got better. And you kind of kind of changed my, my view on how that history transpired. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from hunter-gatherers to the earliest forms of sedentary agricultural lifestyle and some of the problems that actually came with that?
1: Yes. So one of the things to note here is that uh, you often hear the the phrase, evolution has no foresight. So yes, if we look at uh, contemporary uh, societies, we we might, at least most of us will be in agreement that uh, there are a lot of um, cultural achievements that make life so much better today than, let's say, 10 or 15,000 years ago. So we have things like healthcare, at least in most societies, We have technology, uh, we have labor saving devices, uh, we have uh, protection, we have policing systems, we have all sorts of uh, things that our ancestors couldn't uh, enjoy. Uh, But of course, in order for us to, to be able to enjoy those things today, there have been If we look at what happened in all of those 10,000 years that preceded, you will see that it's only very recently that we've been able to to reap the benefits of living in large-scale societies. For the vast majority of of the existence of those societies, it was just a handful of individuals, typically kings and queens, that were able to enjoy the benefits, and everybody else would suffer uh, for that to happen. People might often think that uh, hunter-gatherers lived a very miserable life, that they had a low life expectancy, that they were at the the mercy of uh, predators and and the weather, um, and uh, uh, that their life was full of stress. Um, Some of that might be true, but overall, uh, historical evidence suggests that actually hunter-gatherers were able to work much less to procure uh, their nutrition. They uh, enjoyed a better lifestyle that, that was less stressful. They had uh, all of their close social support networks uh, close to them. Um, they had ample free time. They uh, had time for entertainment and, and a lot of uh, virtual activities. Um, they exercised more, and they actually lived uh, longer. As soon as uh, people settled down and started uh, growing crops. Then what you see is that, there, first of all, the nutrition uh, worsened by, uh, by a lot. Uh, with archaeological evidence suggests that uh, they're, they're, they start losing the, the enamel of their, their teeth because their diet is now much poorer. They rely on grain uh, or other crops uh, too much. Um, the average uh, height dropped by about 10 centimeters and actually didn't bounce back until uh, the beginning of the last century. Uh, you see all of uh, all kinds of uh, viruses uh, jump jumping to humans from other animals because now they live in close proximity with those animals. Sometimes they share the household with them, which means also that they, uh, they're they exposed to their feces. Uh, up until uh, just a few centuries ago, London was, was full of excrement and the Thames and, and other big rivers and, and major cities were full of excrement. And people would, once a day, uh, a bell would strike and everybody would just throw their... The bucket uh, outside the window. That's how. That's what life in, in those early industrial cities was was like. Um, uh, burning uh, coal uh, created so much pollution, and, and and so on and so forth. So they, they were um, uh, another major thing that happened is that uh, for the first time now um, you had ways of producing and storing a surplus. So you can produce a lot of grain. Hunter gatherers obviously didn't have any uh, food surplus because they moved around. Uh, agriculturalists now could have a surplus. But the first thing that means is that once you have that surplus, then now you need to defend that surplus. And In order to defend that surplus, you need uh, to produce more and more to feed militaries, to fill those who are going to build uh, walls and weapons, uh, to have a permanent uh, military. And, of course, you're, you're under constant threat of, of raiding and invasion. Another thing that happened is that people could uh, started having many more children just because they could, they could afford to, because they were more less mobile, but very few of them made it into adulthood. So uh, uh, child mortality increased terribly, uh, and so this this idea, this romantic idea that uh, suddenly uh, our ancestors switched to a to a sedentary lifestyle, and this set them up to enjoy all the benefits of civilization that's that's a myth. Uh, it took us about ten thousand years to, to to reach a point where we can actually enjoy the sacrifices of uh, so many generations that had to whose lives were really became much more miserable uh, by living a, an agricultural
0: life. Yeah, I mean, it was it was striking for me to learn about some of the immediate physical and physiological deficits that people experience when they transition to those earliest forms of sedentary agricultural life. You know, you mentioned that the average height dropped by something like four inches. There were literal morphological changes to the human form, health and exposure to disease um, got worse. And I mean, it was, it was striking partly because, you know, we look at like American and so-called developed societies today, we, we see, you know, obesity rates on the rise, diabetes rates, diabetes rates on the rise, more cardiovascular disease. And we think of that as a very, very modern thing. Like it's the result of, you know, eating too much processed food and stuff. And that may be true. But what I didn't realize is that whole thing, that whole sort of uh, trajectory of negative health consequences started right from the beginning of sedentary life.
1: Absolutely. So this now creates a, another big puzzle, which is why? Why would people give up the comforts? Or Well, again, I don't want to idealize hunter-gatherers and, and to, to say that they, they enjoyed a very comfortable lifestyle. No, they had their own uh, stressors, and, and of course, they had to, to deal with a lot of environmental challenges and a lot of uncertainty themselves. But um, all evidence points to, to the fact that uh, agricultural life was was once worse. So why? Why did people do this?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I would love to talk about now is that transition from hunter-gatherer, nomadic sort of traditional lifestyles to sedentary agricultural birth of civilization stuff and what was actually driving that. And this is not my field of study, but it's fascinating. I think most people are fascinated by it. Like, why did civilization start and why did it grow into what it is today? And I know that there's a lot of diversity of thought and debate here, you know, in terms of which way different causal arrows point. So for example, um, did we need to uh, come up with new religious rituals and develop monotheism for large-scale societies to develop? Or did large scale societies develop for some other reason? And those sort of religious changes were a consequence of that, to just give one example. And at this part of the book, you quote a man named Klaus Schmidt, who takes uh, an interesting view on this. And, And the quote that I loved is he said, first came the temple, then the city, implying that there was some kind of group, ritual, religious thing that happened that enabled civilizations and cities to grow only after that first step happened and i would love if you could unpack that quote for us and perhaps talk about um talk about that in the context of gobekli Ge- tepi
1: yes so the established wisdom for a long time has been that um it was the the material base that came first and all of these other higher things followed uh, in the transition towards a, a sedentary lifestyle meaning that uh, um Nomadic populations at some point uh, figured out that by by growing their crops and, and staying nearby to tend to their crops, they can have a surplus of, of food and therefore they can prosper. And that allowed them to just sit back and enjoy uh, some other privileges and let's say afford to have a, a permanent clergy or, or things like artists and philosophers. And from that uh, uh, follow all sorts of other things. So that was what allowed them to have these large-scale rituals, those religious beliefs, and so on. Now, this view was uh, was seriously challenged when um, a group of archaeologists led by Klaus Schmidt uh, unearthed Gobekli Tepe. And this is a Neolithic site in, um, in present-day Turkey, close to the Syrian border, which seems to be something... Uh, it appeared to be something unique, and now we know more sites uh, like it. Uh, uh, what they found there, uh, the, uh, at some point, th- this was discovered and then abandoned. as They, they thought it was a, um, a Byzantine uh, cemetery because they found these the tops of these gigantic pillars, but they, they just thought they were tombstones. But then when Schmidt, uh, the German archaeologist, came across it, he realized that he had found something much more important. So what happened at this site is that you have at least 20 uh, large uh, circular sites that could be described as temples. And each one of them has these T-shaped pillars that are just enormous. Each one of them can weigh up to 20 tons. 20 tons. Uh, they are very ornate. They're carved with an exquisite detail with all those um, wild animals and fantastical creatures that sort of jumped out uh, of the reliefs. Uh, this was clearly a, a monumental site. It was clearly a, a ritual site. The amount of work and effort that went into building this site is, is just mind-boggling. Uh, people had to th- these are these are monoliths that would have required hundreds of people to, to work in order to uh, to extract them from a nearby uh, quarry and transport them there and and, um, and build this site. Uh, this site is the oldest uh, human structure known, so it's about twelve thousand, maybe thirteen thousand years old. So it predates. The pyramids—it's three times as old as the pyramids. It's it's twice as old as, as Stonehenge. It predates any other structure that we know, not just uh, religious structure. And the most important uh, thing about it is not the monumental architecture. It's not the, the beauty of the of the carvings. It's not the size. It's the it's the date and what's happening uh, around it, which is not much, hmm. uh, because this this site, as far as we know, at the time there's no permanent settlement anywhere near the area. So it appears that this site was built by nomadic populations. It was built by hunter-gatherers who would travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to visit it. So Smith says that there are um, people coming all the way from present day Israel and Jordan on pilgrimages to visit the site and perform those collective ceremonies that they would have been performing in that site. And it's only about 500 years later that we we find in the same area uh, the first evidence of agriculture. So people are starting to, to corral animals and, and plant some crops. So Smith's idea, which is a really ground, it's a really radical idea, is exactly what you said, is that first came the temple, then the city. Now, if this is true, that changes everything we thought we knew about human history. That means that it wasn't permanent settlement that allowed for these large-scale ceremonies to happen. It was the other way around. It was this motivation. Uh, it wasn't hunger for food that, that led people to... Uh, uh, to settle down, it was first for ritual. So hmm. people were visiting those uh, sites from uh, long distances, and eventually they became so large that they had to to support not just the, the many pilgrims, but they also had to support some sort of clergy. So then cities were built around them to be able to sustain those uh, large scale rituals.
0: Yeah, and 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 obviously all of the. Know-how and all of the behavioral and cognitive capacity to build something like a civilization must have basically been there already when they were building these monumental structures at Göbekli Tepe.
1: Absolutely, there's there's evidence of, of art and, and ritual way before that, uh, for as long as our uh, species uh, goes, and, and 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 substantially farther back.
0: So, so we're basically talking about before permanent. Dwellings, permanent cities, and civilizations formed. You had these monumental places that were steeped in ritual, like Gobekli Tepe, and no one lived there permanently all year round, at first, at least. You had probably hunter gatherer bands of hunter gatherers that lived separately for part or most of the year, and they would periodically come together, I would guess, you know, at certain times of the year that they thought were special. And so, so the idea is, just you have these separate bands periodically coming together and then breaking apart, and coming together and breaking apart. And at one point in the book, someone comes up. You know, you you reference a lot of thinkers that have thought about these things throughout history, and a lot of them come up at multiple points. One who comes up at several points in the book is Emile Durkheim, the sociologist. And you talked about the observation he made in his time that. Aboriginal societies and hunter-gatherer societies often have these kind of two phases of life. They would live in the small bands and do the normal stuff of life and engage in all their habits related to getting food and raising children and and surviving. But then periodically, they would come together, many bands, and they would engage in these larger scale ritualistic behaviors. So can you talk a little bit about who Emile Durkheim was and, and what that observation is and how it ties into what we were just talking about?
1: Okay, so, Mildurkheim is this French uh, sociologist who is seen by many as the uh, the founder of sociology, but also one of the founding figures in, in anthropology. And he talked about a lot of interesting things that come up in the book, as you said. But one of them is this distinction between the sacred and what he called the profane. And for our purposes, we can we can simply call the profane, we can call the secular. But he talks about these two different phases of life. And this can apply to our existence as well. Everyday life consists in two different spheres. So there's the, the profane, or let's call it the secular, uh, where we just go about doing menial uh, things and just uh, uh, providing for our families who work uh, and we commute and we do all these uh, mundane things that don't have any deep, meaningful uh, uh, sense for us. But then once every once in a while, uh, people get together and they perform these ceremonies. So for us, this might be uh, attending a, a concert, or going to a, to a stadium, or spending Thanksgiving with your family. If you think about it, some of the might might argue that the only time that a family, an extended family, is truly a family, is during the performance of ser- certain rituals. Uh, the only times you will see your extended family all together, it will be at some wedding, uh, at some funeral, at some graduation, it's one of those rituals. And this goes way back. So for Durkheim, early human societies would have these, they would hunt and they would fish and they would gather. But then every once in a while, the whole tribe would get together, gather presumably, we can imagine, around the fire and start singing and dancing and perform these uh, high arousal rituals. And this was the only time where the, the group would cease to be individuals and they would feel like one, they would feel like a proper group. And that for Durkheim is, is fundamental, not just for, the, uh, for human evolution, but also has great implications about the emergence of religion itself. Because for Durkheim, and I agree with him on this, ritual comes first and and ideology follows. Uh, Uh. In many branches of psychology, we kind of take it for granted, although it's not not properly stated out there explicitly, but we, we seem to take it for granted that we act because we believe. We held certain beliefs and attitudes, and thereby we act upon the world on the basis of them. Uh, Durkheim says that very, very often it's the other way around. First, we act in the world, and by acting, we kind of we produce inferences uh, about our internal states, about who we are as individuals and who we are as members of, the, of groups. So, our personal and collective identities are forced through participation in those collective activities, like who we go to school with, who we who we dance with, uh, who we participate in rituals with. Uh, and from that follows ideology. So if you don't have those group rituals, you can't have ideas about uh, a group or a nation or, or, a, or a club or, or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by this idea that, that rituals are powerful in the sense that they are literally changing our physiological states. And they're, they're literally, in many cases, psychoactive experiences. They change how, how our mind is in the moment participating in the ritual compared to the more ordinary modes of life, right? So so again, the distinction between the sacred and the profane. When when we're engaged with the sacred, when we're engaged in these communal ritual behaviors, it literally changes our physiology and it literally has psychoactive effects. And I would love for you to talk now about how we actually study these things and start to understand what's going on physiologically when people engage in these group rituals, and a great episode in the book on that was your studies of heart rate synchrony in people engaged in these firewalking rituals. So, can you walk people through that and how you actually conducted that type of study?
1: Yes. So, this type of study was designed specifically to um, to test some of Durkheim's claims. Uh, for about a hundred years, anthropologists have been talking about this. Feeling that they call collective effervescence. It comes from Durkheim himself. And he describes how people would come together and participate in those collective ceremonies. And he said something like just by, by virtue of, of being together and acting together, people feel like they're, they act as one and they feel as one. And he described collective effervescence as this feeling of electricity that permeates the members of a group when they come together to enact those rituals. You might have experienced this when uh, going to, uh, let's say, um, a sports stadium, chanting together with 50,000 people. You might get goosebumps at the back of your, your neck. That's collective effervescence. Or when you dance together at a concert with a large group of people and, and you, you experience this as a transformational sort of ecstatic moment. If you take part in a massive demonstration, you're marching for a common goal and you're all chanting together. Again, you might get goosebumps. That's the kind of feeling that Durkheim had in mind. And that's the kind of feeling that, um, for him, transforms individuals into uh, a single entity. So it's a feeling of oneness and togetherness. So um, I started wondering, um, what would it take to measure this feeling? How can we operationalize this togetherness? And that means how can we turn it into something we can actually measure uh, conceptually? And um, at the time, I was at Orgos University, so I met up uh, with a group of uh, people from various different disciplines, and we put together a team, and we went to a small village in in Spain where I was doing fieldwork called San Pedro Manrique. And in in that village, this is a 600-people community, and there's this one amphitheater at at the top of the hill which can host 3,000 spectators. And this has been built specifically to host this one ritual. that takes place once a year. And this is a firewalking ritual. Uh, people will build a, a large um, fire made of oak wood, and we measured the, the temperature there. It was enough to melt uh, aluminium. Uh, it was about 1,200 Fahrenheit. And uh, it takes several hours to, to burn into a, a bed of coals. And everybody else, as they're doing that, everybody else uh, takes part in those dances and preparations that, that take place in the central uh, plaza, in the central square. And then they start marching up towards this um, amphitheater. And once they get in and everybody takes their seats and there, there's a group of 30 to 40 individuals who will uh, walk on fire. So what they do is they take off their shoes they go and fetch somebody. It's somebody who's very close to them. It's typically a family member or a loved one or a good friend. They, they perch them on their back and with somebody on their back, they go through this uh, 1200 degree fire pit uh, there for it. And this is something that has to be seen to be <laughs> believed, but that is the ritual. So this was the context um, in which my colleagues and I uh, decided to bring our measurements. And we thought, if Durkheim is right, if people have this feeling of connectedness, and by the way, by, through my ethnography, through talking to these people, I could see that this would none of them had read Durkheim, <laughs> but this would come up all the time. So when I asked them to describe what it's like, they would say, they would say things like, there are 3,000 people there, but you feel like you're one of them, one of the crowd. There's this feeling of togetherness, and they would talk about identity. They would talk about how once you've done this, everybody becomes your brother, uh, even if they were your enemies before. You know you've been through this together. Uh, So it was this feeling of oneness and togetherness that we wanted to quantify. And we thought that if if this is truly something that that happens, it should leave a signature at the physiological level. So we should be able to measure emotional reactions by looking at the autonomic nervous system, so specifically looking at heart rates. So we took um, uh, some heart rate monitors and we went into that site and we placed them on Uh, both firewalkers and spectators, so those walking across the coals and those just sitting there and watching. People were involved in different activities uh, as well. And we thought that if TurkM is right, then we should see that their heart rates would synchronize. And that's exactly what we see. First of all, we see an extraordinary degree of synchrony there in the heart rates. But this was not um, indiscriminate. This did not happen for everybody. we mapped the social network of the bullets. So we asked everybody in our sample to list their uh, um, their closest uh, people by genetic and, and social proximity, their closest friends, their, their relatives, and so on. And then we saw that the the, the closer this social proximity, the, the stronger the physiological synchrony. So if you looked at the set of brothers, one of them would be far walking. The other one would just be sitting there and, and walking. Were, their heart rates would be aligned to a very impressive degree. But if you look at some of the um, the visitors, because remember, 600 people living there, 3,000 people attending. So most of them are actually visitors. They just come and, and go. They're just tourists. Uh, those curious spectators, they there was no synchrony for them. It was only for the group members And in fact, that was related to the degree of uh, of membership, or or at least proximity to other individuals. And this is exactly what Durkheim would have predicted, I think, because he says somewhere in his uh, in his book that these ceremonies they don't necessarily create social cohesion out of thin air. What they do is that, and these emotions that they produce, they bring those who share already share a common identity. They bring them even closer together. And now there've been there've been similar studies that that actually show this at the uh, uh, at the um, uh, neurological level.
0: Yeah, and w- one thing that was remarkable, one of your observations, I think, with this was, um, I, I think you said in the book that you know people would walk across the fire, and you would ask them to describe their mindset, their mental state as they did that. And, you know, they basically described it as being in a flow state or something. They were they were calm, they were focused, they were completely in the moment. Um, and you measured their heart rates, but their heart rates were like through the roof to the point where if you saw this in another context, you would think the person was having a heart attack or something. So can you comment on that discrepancy and what that might point to?
1: Yes. So there, there's this phenomenon called flow. There, there, there's the psychologist called Michali uh, he me highly. His name is impossible to pronounce, so I'm, I, I'm sort of slaughtered it. Um, but he came up with a concept of flow. And he talks about this feeling of being so immersed in an activity that nothing else matters. We get this tunnel vision. That's what you get with fighter pilots. That's what they report. Sometimes when practicing a craft or, or even engaged in sexual activity, you might get so much sucked into the moment that uh, you lose sense of time. Uh, things either, either fly uh, by or, or they slow down. It's like going in slow motion. We've all experienced something like that. Some people might play video games and, and, and experience this. It, but I uh, but I think that's what I discuss in the book, that there's a, uh, these collective activities, where these flow states take part in a collective context. And when they're shared, they... Uh, their effects are, are, are at a whole other level. And there, there are actually studies showing us that the flow when experienced in the presence of others and in shared tasks is a much more powerful feeling. So phenomenologically, which means that on the, based on people's lived experience and what they describe, how they describe that experience, that exactly fits um, this concept of flow. So they, they describe this as um, time slowing down for them as they walk through the fire, it lasts a few seconds, but it feels like it lasts uh, uh, for minutes. Uh, you, you don't see anything around you. You know there are 3,000 people around you, but it's just you and the fire, somebody told me. Uh, I actually did the firework myself, and that's that was exactly my experience. Even though I was not a local, time slowed down for me, and I had this this tunnel vision effect as well, and then, of course, all the, the physiological arousal. Um even when we don't actually realize. So one of the interesting things that we found in Spain is that people, when I asked people to estimate their own physiological arousal, and they knew what I meant because they were wearing heart rate monitors. Uh, Everybody in my sample said, uh, it was the calmest I've ever been. So it Mm -hmm. felt like a meditative state, which is another point that sometimes hypoarousal and hyperarousal in the context of virtuals can have similar effects. but our measurements found that some of them had 220 beats per minute. They, those were levels that I never thought were possible, wow. 240. 80% of them crossed the medically accepted level of arousal. So those were heart attack levels. And they felt as calm as uh, ever.
0: So yeah, you can, you can get these profound physiological effects and they, they're, they're bundled up with these profound psychoactive effects. People go into these mental states that they just don't ordinarily go into. I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, participation participation in these group rituals has these physiological effects, including psychoactive effects. One thing that immediately gets me thinking about is another kind of ritual that's very common across many human cultures, um, goes back deep in our history. I'm not sure you got into this in the book specifically, but there's a lot of very uh, ornate rituals tied to the ingestion of psychoactive substances themselves and i want to set up one example that i've been thinking about for people that don't know and kind of get your take on it so as some people will know um in the amazon rainforest for i think thousands of years uh shamans in different cultures there have been brewing ayahuasca and ayahuasca is uh uh, it's a a brew it's a, a cauldron filled with plant material that has various ingredients The two key ingredients are one, a plant which contains the psychedelic tryptamine DMT, which is a very potent hallucinogen, and key ingredient number two is a plant that contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, an enzyme that renders the DMT orally active, such that when you swallow the brew, the DMT is not chopped up by enzymes in your digestive tract It's absorbed into your bloodstream and you have this um, extremely vivid, extremely powerful, hallucinatory experience. And there's there's an elaborate ritual around it, right? You you get together with a group of people. It's led by a shaman. They're typically singing certain songs. They're administering the concoction in a particular way. It's a highly ritualized thing. And people describe this as being very transformative, not only from themselves at sort of a, a psychological, spiritual level. But you know we know now that DMT and, and ayahuasca potentially have uh, genuine medical value in the sort of modern Western sense, um, and these things are being studied in the clinic um, in, in different ways today. now, what's interesting about this to me is that not only do you have this powerful psychedelic and this powerful experience that people report extraordinary outcomes from with regard to you know depression, addiction and just you know general general life quality um, but my understanding is that certain components of the ayahuasca brew probably also have another kind of genuine biological effect that would have clear adaptive value for someone living in the middle of the rainforest, and that is they have anti-parasitic properties. Now, I'm a little murky on the details, but if that's true, you know it makes a lot of sense. Why something like that would evolve and persist in a culture located in the Amazon where you've got a lot of jungle parasites and jungle bugs that you're constantly going to be exposed to. And so it would seem that if, if somehow someone discovered that you mix these plants together, it has this amazing psychedelic effect, they created elaborate rituals around it. Presumably, the cultures that created this have no direct knowledge that it has this anti parasitic effect. Presumably, they didn't go and extract chemicals one at a time from plants and test them against different parasites and worms and things. And so it gets to this idea of causal opacity that people believe it has a causal effect in the world. And in, in, in the ayahuasca ritual, right, you talk about communing with ancestor spirits and it, it's kind of got all of that flavor around it. And it's possible in this case that, you know, at the same time that you have that sort of ritual and that sort of uh, r- religious or spiritual understanding that gets built up around why you do the uh, do the ritual, you actually do have this other very concrete adaptive biological function being performed it and, and, and those things sort of tie together to help, I think help us understand how something so elaborate could evolve and persist that that people have where people have no conscious awareness of the actual concrete adaptive value that it is in fact serving Does that? Make sense to you, and more generally, how do you think about rituals around sacred?
1: a lot of anthropologists, especially in the materialist tradition, have have um, made certain claims of that kind. That uh, and here's what again, where we talk about cultural selection, it's mm-hmm. it, now we're talking about cultural evolution because it's not so. Perhaps in a in, a, in an environment um, like the Amazon, somebody taking a, a drug that will that will have antiparasitic. Um, Uh, capacities would be more likely to survive. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's been enough time to to change our biological evolution. Mm -hmm. It does mean, however, that those practices that involve those components are more likely to be selected themselves.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: Similarly, if you live in the Middle East, some anthropologists have argued maybe it's not keeping pigs, it's not um, the most uh, efficient way of farming, or maybe there are health issues uh, involved with parasite transmission, so a taboo against those uh, consuming certain foods is the same. The same principle mm. uh, will eventually be uh, selected in the course of cultural uh, selection, and a lot of rituals work in uh, in those kinds of ways. But you also bring up something uh, something else that I think is very interesting: that um, hallucinogenic drugs and all kinds of other substances are are very commonly found uh, across many cultures, and they are uh, selected for, uh, they have survived those practices because they, they might have specific uh, functions. But another interesting thing is that uh, what can be induced pharmacologically? So in this, uh, in this case, the ritual is just our, uh, people's way of, uh, of ingesting something that has value in itself. But a lot of the time we see that what the same pharmacological effects can actually be achieved through physiological stimulation. In a lot of cases. Mm. So, first of all, hallucinations, when to the extent that uh, people hallucinate, and then that might uh, have effects such as um, uh, increasing their faith because they've had divine revelation, or increasing uh, bonding, or perhaps increasing hope in the context of healing rituals, you can induce that through physiological stimulation. So, I, I worked, I did field work among a Greek uh, community called the Anastinaria. And in the context of that community who also have firewalking walking rituals, people have this uh, annual festival where they dance for the better part of three days. So it involves a lot of exhaustion. They dance for a couple of hours, they stop, they dance again, some of them collapse on the ground, then they'll pick them up and they'll continue. Uh, they'll, they'll go to bed and then the next morning it's the same again and again. For three days they, they keep dancing under a lot of heat uh, this is uh, May 21st in, in, in a continental Greece where it can be brutally hot in a, in a closed space. And by doing that, a lot of them experienced hallucinations. So a woman was telling me that she, she looked up and the, and the ceiling was gone all of a sudden. And she saw the angels singing the great doxology. Now, that does a lot of things for that woman. First of all, it reinforces her faith in, that, in, their, in the religious uh, narrative of this group. But also a lot of people who are attracted to those rituals, uh, it has been documented that they they tend to suffer from specific types of maladies. A very common uh, type is depression, anxiety, and other types of mental illness. People who are drawn to these rituals, and I have found this in, in other contexts as well, in Mauritius, for example, people who are who suffer from those types of um um inflictions they they are more likely to take part in these very intense rituals, and in another study we actually documented that those uh, who do they they have they they uh, derive greater benefits and the more intense their participation, the more intense this physiological stimulation uh, the more pronounced these benefits are
0: yeah, and you know switching gears a little bit, one of the one of the things that I thought was fascinating in here and that connects into some other books that I love from from some other people is the relationship between ritual, pre-linguistic ritual behavior and the evolution of language itself in human beings. So- one of my favorite thinkers on the subject who I had on the show on episode 20 or something like that is a man named Terence Deacon, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, but if you haven't listened to that episode and you're listening, I highly recommend that one. I think it will pair very well with this discussion we're about to have. And his book is called The Symbolic Species, one of his books that he wrote many years ago. And he essentially argues that our capacity for symbolic cognition was one of the key prerequisites for us to actually develop and evolve language as we know it today. And he talks a lot about you know, what symbolic cognition is and how that's tied to uh, different aspects of, of brain development and brain evolution. He talks about how certain human rituals, I think one of his favorites to talk about here is marriage, might be tied to or might have actually helped bootstrap the evolution of language and so on the subject of how language evolved and how it relates to things like uh, behavioral rituals and group rituals, I want to read this uh, quote from your book, Demetrius, and then kind of get, get your take on the, the evolution of language. So at one point you write that uh, biological anthropologists suggest that group ceremonies could have played a key role in the transmission of cultural knowledge in pre-linguistic societies through the symbolic reenactment of collective narratives, ritual functioned as an embedded proto-language that provided an external support system to in, <clears throat> external support system to individual cognition, a crucial step on the road towards language itself. So, unpack this idea for us. What is the sort of uh, what is the idea here behind having some kind of embodied ritual that serves as a precursor to the development of verbal language?
1: Yeah. So, so if, if you look at this passage that you. Uh, you just read, I think that there, there are a couple of notes there that take you to the back of the book. And I think Terence Deacon is one of the mm. uh, people I, I cite there. And the other one is Marilyn Donald, a Canadian neuroscientist. They have, uh, they have proposed similar ideas about the role of ritual in the evolution of language. Uh, now, we talked about the symbolic value of ritual. And of course, to, to be able to have language, to be able to have these arbitrary signals, uh, uh, arbitrary notes, or whatever you want to call them, things like words that, that stand for something else. You need the capacity for symbolic language, but before you develop that language, uh, a more straightforward way of doing is is by acting. And we talked about this idea that, that we act first, and by acting, we we come to uh, to embody certain states. So a very simple way of thinking about that is that I can I can tell somebody I love them, or I can just go and hug that person, and that that conveys. Uh, and, and that act of hugging somebody might be actually much more powerful for somebody who's not a robot who's a human being. It might be able to convey many more things that can be said with, uh, with two words. Similarly, if I wanted to show that I'm part of a group, uh, I could I could stand up and make a speech about my allegiance to that group, or I could just take part uh, in a uh, in a long ceremony where I dance uh, together with this group, and 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 I and everybody wears the same insignia. We paint our our faces, we wear the same clothes, we engage in the same actions. And by doing all that, we convey to each other that we're committed to this idea that we are all as one, that we are members of this team. Uh, so we, there's there's a lot of things that can be can be conveyed uh, without the use of words. And I think ritual is one of the uh, one of the most efficient ways that would have been available to our ancestors uh, before the emergence of language.
0: Yeah, so I guess the idea here is, We would have had symbolic rituals. Maybe there were marriage rituals. Maybe there was something else, but people were literally acting in them. They were performing certain acts and certain behaviors. It was all imbued with symbolism. And there's some kind of narrative arc to whatever, whatever the physical act of engaging in this ritual was. And the sort of units of symbolism in those physical acted out rituals may have potentially literally been the precursors to what became spoken words.
1: Yes. And and something else you might have seen in those rituals is the, lo- the role of uh, rhythm, for example, dancing together, mm. our capacity for rhythm, which is, incidentally, it's something we share with birds. And incidentally, birds are the, the, uh, the other type of animal that is so highly ritualized. Um, so our, our capacity to... Uh, um, to follow rhythm, to to dance with each other, and to to be perhaps begin humming with each other, and, and you know a, a form of proto singing. That's that's actually that that's also another precursor to, to language, uh, both in terms of allowing us to to develop the sorts of vocalizations that we need for language, but also our our ability to to track rhythm and to 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 mimic, to to imitate, to to follow all of those things. So imitation is another key aspect of ritual. That's what Marilyn Donald uh, talks about. Uh, that's what ritual essentially is. Performing a cultural ritual uh, uh, requires uh, the ability to imitate very precisely the actions of other people, and and you need that uh, ability uh, also to develop language.
0: Yeah, I think you know language and and rhythm and music are you know other other really interesting potential human universals, and you know it strikes me that. You know, I think music and dance are common in some form to every human culture that we know of, and they're often tied to these other ritual acts. They're often right. You you dance at a wedding, you sing songs at, at mass and, and in, in other religious settings, and all of these things are tied together. And it's, it's probably not a coincidence that, you know, the literal cadence and rhythm of those acts is tied to the cadence and rhythm of spoken language that we see as unique to humans.
1: Not at all. It's not a coincidence at all. And and I think that, first of all, in in my uh, definition, in my view of ritual, um, dance is a quintessential ritual it fits all of the requirements. It's it's repetitive, it's rigid, it's redundant, it's causally opaque. There's no reason why we should dance. There's no utilitarian benefit that is direct. We just do it because we we like it. And and again, it can have measurable uh, benefits for us in terms of social bonding. And in this sense, I think that music, there's a very good chance that music evolved. We evolved our musical capacities just to be able to facilitate this this dancing and and this coordination in the context of these rituals uh, that are crucial to social bonding.
0: Thinking thinking about how rituals evolved from a wider point of view. So so when we think across species and we think about the evolution of ritual behavior and, and where the roots of this stuff really lies... I would love if you could talk about some of the other species that display ritual behaviors and some of the more impressive ritual behaviors that we see in different organisms. One of the things I remember from the book is you talked about several examples of potential death rituals in other species, and I thought those were, you know, were quite uh, evoc, quite striking examples. And I would love if you could walk people through some of those and what that oh. says about how deep the roots of ritual behavior go.
1: So first of all, I should say that there's this. There's often this sense among social scientists. Um, uh, that human beings are so exceptional, that we're so different from the rest of nature. I think it goes back to a lot of, there's a lot of baggage that comes with this idea. Of course, religious traditions have played a role in, in, in why people think uh, in this way, that we're so special because we're chosen by, by God. Uh, there, there are other uh, reasons for it. Um, one of the main reasons is that the lack of evidence, because we just didn't look for it. We took it for granted. When Jade Goodall uh, went to the field and, and observed chimpanzees using tools, for example, uh, people were very upset. They didn't believe her. Uh, part of the reason is because she was a young woman. Uh, she was ridiculed. Uh, she was she was told that using pronouns for, for chimps, calling them he and she, was just humanizing them, and that was a bad. Uh, so a lot of the time, behaviors that we see in other animals that – that we would immediately describe us as, as, uh, as let's say, ritual or art. In, in our species, we're, we're afraid to do that. Sometimes with with good reason. It's good to be cautious because animals cannot tell us what they think. But the truth of the matter is that once we start looking, uh, then we find an abundance of all of the things that people once thought were unique in, uh, to, uh, in humans and were what make us humans. Now we know they exist in other animals. We know there's two views to making in other animals, there's some uh, pro-language, there's certainly a lot of ritualization, uh, there's uh, there's aesthetic appreciation, uh, moral outrage, and all sorts of things that we have found in other animals. The more we look, the more we find. And it's the same with ritual. So the most, the best known examples come from uh, bird mating rituals. But those are sort of, we're all familiar with those. Some of the more interesting examples come come from closer relatives. So you mentioned death rituals. Elephants uh, have um, pretty elaborate death rituals. They seem to be one of the few animals that have an understanding of death. And uh, they're also social animals. So they have these two things in common with us. They're also animals that live very long. And that means that this allows them to have this transmittable knowledge. So they they begin to form traditions. And those traditions involve things like um, funerary rites. Uh, elephants are commonly observed trying to bury dead members of their species, also dead uh, animals, other species, even humans. There are anecdotal reports of people who have uh, found dead or or, or fainted, or, and then elephants come and they try to, to bury them using branches and dirt and, and flowers. Another very interesting thing is that they seem to have what in humans we would call pilgrims. So they sometimes travel uh, thousands of miles or hundreds of miles, uh, led by a matriarch who has knowledge of the the topography, and they travel to visit the bones of their dead ancestors, especially when those ancestors are matriarchs themselves, so some Mm. important member of the community who perished years ago. And once we arrive there, they all fall silent, and then maybe they'll start trumpeting all together, they touch the bones. They smell them. They uh, they really seem to uh, to be emotionally impacted by them. Of course, we don't know what's in their minds, but clearly they they seem they have an understanding of death. They are able to uh, to understand that those bones represent their ancestors, and then they they travel to visit them. Um, even some marine mammals, uh, dolphins, for example, they seem to to do the same thing. So when a, when a dolphin there are reports of uh, uh, groups of dolphins who uh, surround their their dead um, fellow members, and uh, they they maybe push them towards a, uh, a boat, or they, they perform these dances around them. They, they they seem to be doing something that suggests that they're they have an of of death, and it's similar. We see similar behaviors among uh, ravens, who of course are very highly uh, intelligent, and uh, all sorts of other. Animals. Beyond death, uh, of course, a lot of rituals are related to mating. Some of them have very um, obvious similarities with human rituals. Let me give you one example. There's a bird called um, called uh, Jackson's Widow Bird. That bird has a very long tail, uh, which is about three times its body length, and uh, it has a, a, a peculiar mating ritual. So the males will they gather in areas that uh, we call leks. A lek is some. The site of a collective bird mating ritual. And uh, the males clear the, the grass. They, they, each one of them establishes an individual dance floor. And then they start jumping up and down as high as they can. And the females gather around and they, they watch them. And they, if they like what they see, then they go off and mate with that male. Now, almost the exact same ritual exists in, in uh, among certain human uh, tribes. For example, there are many African tribes that have this uh, these uh, choreographed dances that involve jumping as high as, uh, up as you can or lifting your, your leg to the extent that it goes over your head, which is a very difficult uh, thing to do. You need to be very fit to do this. And then members of the opposite sex, you find those both as, uh, as male and female rituals. Um, they gather and pick their, their, their favorite uh, uh, future partners. So there are a lot of interesting mating rituals uh, as well. But one of the most fascinating things I think that we've seen in recent research uh, comes from chimps. Uh, throughout West Africa, uh, um, scientists from the Max Planck Institute have set up cameras and um, they, were, they documented in various places, they documented these behaviors among chimps who they sometimes they go off course. So when they travel an area, they, they'll, they'll go out of their way literally to visit those hollow trees. For some reason, those seem special to them. And they either, uh, they drum on those trees or they take rocks and they pile them up inside the tree or in front of the tree. And if Hmm. you look at a picture of those piles, they they are indistinguishable from those cairns that that, uh, humans in in many cultures uh, build as as Mm -hmm. markers of some sacred site. So obviously we don't know what's going on in their minds. We'll never know. Uh, But the most parsimonious uh, inference here uh, the most obvious one is that these are rituals, for change, just like we would we would uh, say if we saw them uh, among uh, living or uh, or you know, prehistoric humans.
0: Getting back to this idea that ritual behavior is a kind of antidote to negative psychological states like anxiety, and that it's actually you know the reason that you see rituals most frequently and the most. Elaborate rituals in sort of the smartest and most social species is that having the kind of brain that allows you to be so smart and engage in social cognition is exactly the kind of brain that predisposes you to things like anxiety and other negative affective states. And you are inevitably going to experience that if you have such a brain, if you're a human, if you're an elephant, if you're a chimp, or what have you. And ritual behavior is literally a kind of behavioral antidote to that. So with that stuff in mind we you know when you look at the numbers when you look at the charts in the modern so-called developed world including the United States you see things like you see many different psychiatric diseases that have been up and to the right on the rise for many years now including depression and anxiety where do you think this comes from and do you think it could be tied to sort of the the degradation of a lot of the traditional religious and, and ritual structures that we have in society, and their degradation is actually driving an increase in things like anxiety. I think
1: there, there are two things, things happening at two levels that are self-reinforcing, creating a vicious cycle. On the one hand, the, the, as, as I mentioned earlier, the pace of life is, is much faster uh, today than, than ever before. Social media, certainly for, for many reasons that we probably don't have time to get into, they create a lot of anxieties. Uh, We live in an environment radically different from what our ancestors lived even even a couple of generations ago. Uh, So our environment itself and our existence today is much more stressful than it used to be or than it should be. At the same time, some of the best uh, tools that we would have, that we should have for dealing with those situations, uh, we are more deprived of those today than ever before. And I would point to two things and they're, they're, they're related. One is our social networks. So we, we live, more people live together far away from their families or their uh, childhood friends than ever before in human history. I live in a different continent than, than, than my relatives and my childhood friends. Uh, and most of us in, in the United States do not live within walking distance from our uh, parents' place as, as people would have done for most of our existence. Uh, there are a lot of studies that show that social networks are one of the main buffers against anxiety. The other thing is those traditional practices, uh, rituals, uh, that we tend to abandon, thinking that they're they're uh, they're outdated or they're they're wasteful or they're, they're pointless. But they have served uh, our species throughout our existence, and, and as we discussed, somebody that has served us for so long was probably. A, Uh, uh, probably had uh, tangible functions for us. And of course, those two things are interrelated because those uh, rituals not only help us cope with anxiety as individuals, but they also help us do it as a collective, which means that they help us forge social networks. So traditionally, ritual participation uh, was one of the main ways uh, through which human communities were able to bond. And this is something that we're liking. Now, we don't entirely like this. So another thing you see is that as uh, things like religious rituals are becoming less and less common in in modern secularized societies, you see that people are more and more likely to turn to other forms of um, spirituality that are also very heavily uh, ritualized and ritual-based. From things like meditation to things like yoga to things like participation in, in Burning Man, which is entirely ritualized, from things like secular gatherings like graduation ceremonies or secular weddings that are also ritualized just as much as religious weddings uh, they can be. Uh, all of those things are ways of, uh, of people reclaiming that, that the power of, of ritual or those social technologies. Uh, so uh, in this sense, when you begin to look at ritual from that lens, you realize that it's actually still omnipresent. It's not just because religious rituals are not around us as much as they used to doesn't mean that we're not living ritualized lives.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I want to tie into this that you talk about in the book that I think this may have even been like your PhD thesis was centered on this notion of extreme rituals. And, And you give many examples in the book of rituals that are extreme in the sense that they require the participant to do something very, very physically demanding or that is very, very painful and arduous. And I think oftentimes these are tied to identity, right? Some kind of formation or transition in your identity. You go through the ritual and you come out the other end as a different kind of person. You come out of it as a warrior or a priest or a man or a woman or what have you, whereas when you entered it, you were something else. And so what's the connection here between pain and extreme physical exertion and this identity transformation function that many rituals form?
1: We can look at at least two different aspects of this. We can we can talk about the uh, the way our mind perceives uh, and and evaluates uh, effort and the kinds of inferences we draw from that. So studies show that if I do something that is more that requires more effort, I will come to appreciate it more. From climbing a mountain to to raising children to doing something more mundane as in, in certain experiments, membership in a reading group. When people have to go through an initiation ritual to join that reading group. Uh, or they, they had to endure more severe electric shocks to be part of that group. They came to like that group more. So there's that that aspect. that when, Once you've invested so much uh, in a ritual, that doesn't have to be in the form of intensity just once. It could be cumulative investments of time. So think about the fact most people, the vast majority of human beings, the first time you you take part in a collective ritual, it's not because you, you woke up and, and thought, ah, oh, maybe I should do that today. It's because you're a child and your parents take you. But through the process of socialization, as you go there every Sunday or or every Friday or uh, or daily, uh, you come to derive meaning from those rituals, and you come. This is we discussed about how by by doing things, uh, we enact our social identities. So you come to feel as part of that group. Some things don't need to be said. The other aspect of it is the the, the shared aspect of it. So we go through these ceremonies together. And especially in the case of extreme ceremonies, when, uh, when we, like the people in San Pedro told me, uh, you've been through this situation together, you've now become brothers. We, our, our brain makes these inferences that if we have suffered together uh, with those people, if we have laughed together, if we've experienced very strong emotions, if we cry together, that means that we're uh, closely connected. Because typically the people you cry with, you cry together with, uh, they're members of your family they're your uh, your very inner uh, circle and these effects can be measurable. so I've done studies for example in the island of Mauritius where I do most of my uh, research. This is a, an island in the Indian Ocean it has a Hindu majority um, and it's one of the most diverse places on earth so for an anthropologist who study ritual it's it's perfect because I can I can observe the rituals of many different traditions but one of the most uh, intense and painful of those rituals is the Taipassam Kavadi. And this is performed by Tamil Hindus in India and around the world. And it involves, um, well, lots of hardships. It's a long day, all, a day-long pilgrimage that involves uh, walking barefooted on the burning asphalt under the burning sun, uh, carrying large structures on your shoulders, uh, but it also involves uh, body piercings. And those can range from one needle to hundreds of needles throughout the entire body, or even skewers, pierced through the cheeks, and all sorts of other self-imposed acts of torture. We have done studies there where we, for example, we looked at charitable donations um, and what happens when people take part in different types of rituals. So we find that when people take part in a collective ritual at the same temple, compared to control group, they are much more likely to give money to charity. But uh, when they take part in, in the painful ritual, they're even more, in fact, way more likely to, to give money to charity, to help an in-group. They're less likely to cheat in certain economic uh, games uh, against uh, fellow group members. And, and in fact, that increases as a function of pain. So the more they have suffered as individuals, the more pro-social they become.
0: Do you think it's possible that you know, today, like right now in real time, we're seeing new forms of ritual spontaneously evolve that have to do with, uh, that are a kind of response to this rise in anxiety and other things that we're seeing in the rest Western world and that are tied to the, the intense preoccupation that more and more people seem to have with things like identity and what they're called and the physical manifestation and the physical change that some people actually actually do to their bodies?
1: Absolutely. Uh, first of all, there, there are new rituals uh, uh, um, being invented every day. But as we, as we discussed, some of them will make it, some of them will just not last very long. But I can, I can point to two types of, uh, of recent inventions. So one, or relatively recent, uh, one is uh, Friendsgiving. So Thanksgiving mm-hmm. has been traditionally for, for North Americans, it's been time to meet with your family, we just discussed about how increasingly difficult this becomes. Sometimes your family might be in another continent; uh, it might just be impossible. Sometimes you might have a global pandemic preventing you from traveling. So, what do you do? Well, you 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 reenact those rituals, um, with a twist. So, in this case, it could be uh, Thanksgiving with a group of friends. So, friendsgiving. Another example might be divorce rituals.
0: Mm. So, for
1: the, for most of our existence. Uh, because of patriarchal, the patriarchal uh, structure of most humans, well, all human societies in, in history, uh, divorce was an impossibility for the vast majority of the population, uh, especially for for women. They just couldn't they couldn't just leave their their husbands, even if they were being abused. Uh, so today, we have more uh, people are able to make their own choices, in, uh, uh, in at least in most of the of the world, and most of the time. Um, and with that comes a, a spike in divorce rates, which is a good thing. It's an accomplishment. That means that people are actually able to get out of an abusive relationship. It means that they can they have the means to support themselves. At the same time, this is the only uh, major life transition that doesn't have an associated ceremony, a dedicated mm. cer- ceremony. And we we'll see that in response to that, uh, people are beginning to uh, uh, to invent divorce ceremonies. We see it in the United States, uh, we see it in, in Japan, and that goes back actually a few centuries in Japan. There's a, there's a temple there that uh, uh, was dedicated to protecting uh, women who have been abused by their uh, husbands. And today, um, in modern Japan, it offers people uh, an opportunity to uh, to perform a divorce ritual, either by uh it happens in one place by uh, by flushing uh, your vows or your wedding rings or or just a note down the toilet, literally. Or in in other context, it happens by uh, smashing your wedding ring.
0: Mm.
1: And sometimes you will see that even both people. That it doesn't have to be an abusive relationship. Sometimes it's just the end of a relationship, um, and it's consensual. But um, that you know, when you've lived with somebody for most of your life, you you will feel this. This gap, it's, it's very hard to move on. You feel there's guilt and in, in starting to date again and starting a new life. There are a lot of emotions and not having a dedicated ritual to allow you to make this transition is very difficult. So sometimes couples will go together and they will smash their, uh, their rings with a hammer uh, and they will come out, presumably feeling much better about it.
0: You know, when we think about modern day rituals, one Pattern of motif that I think is really interesting is this kind of organic rediscovery of uh, ancient ritual motifs that we're sort of um, that we're spontaneously re engaging in. And, you know, so to tie up to our earlier discussion, you know, we, we spent some time talking about the birth of civilization, essentially, the transition from being nomadic hunter gatherers. To sedentary agriculturalists, and then the rise of what became modern civilization, and you know, so we talked about things like Gobekli Tepe. Our, our ancestors used to be hunter gatherers. They eventually started coming together periodically, perhaps once a year, perhaps multiple times a year, to places like Gobekli Te- Tepe to engage in these ritual practices. Eventually, that turned into cities and civilizations. And eventually, you know, we got to the present moment. We could do a whole podcast on that stuff. But what's super fascinating to me is today in the modern world, so-called, in the Western world, in the US and elsewhere, we actually seem to have gone back and sort of rediscovered some of those ancient patterns of coming together periodically. And one that's super interesting and uh, near to my heart that you talk about in the book is Burning Man, So can you talk, for people that don't know, what is Burning Man? And can you tell the story of how that ritual spontaneously got started to do with the Mm -hmm. temple burning?
1: So Burning Man is this event, for lack of a better word. And I'm saying this because many people call it a festival, but burners, sometimes they will insist that it's not a festival. It's something else. They might call it community, for example. They might call it something else. It is essentially a makeshift city. That is built in uh, Black Rock, Nevada, every year, uh, around August September. Uh, up to eighty thousand people will gather there. They will they will set up a city from scratch in the middle of the desert, and a week later they will just remove everything uh, or burn it and leaving no traces behind. And they're actually very uh, methodic about this, about how they they go collecting everything. Um, now this is an event. It's a very interesting real-life experiment, because it's a, uh, it's an event that at first was uh, all about fun and games. It was held on the beach, and anybody could participate, and there wasn't much interest in in participating. And then they moved it uh, to the middle of the desert, and they, they have a very steep fee for participating now, and you need to do a lot of sacrifices. Um, uh, the, the conditions, they are not uh, very pleasant in the middle of the desert. Uh, and nonetheless, they, they, they have more people than they could possibly accommodate, and they have spawned uh, uh, partner events uh, around the world. So what happens there is people come, and for a whole week, they engage in those. They're free to engage in all kinds of artistic uh, and ritual expressions. So you have uh, art installations, you have very exuberant costumes and, and vehicles and all sorts of uh, uh, events, And um, in all of those events, you will see a ritual. This is not explicit. This is not intentional, or or maybe it is a little bit intentional because the founders of Burning Man actually read a lot about religion in religious studies. So they took a page from from, uh, ritual design, so to speak. Uh, But a lot of things have uh, emerged organically. And that's the most interesting part for me. Because if you look at, they have their own census. And if you look at the census, 95% say they're not religious. So, according to one definition, if we're we're based on the census, we might say that this is possibly the least religious crowd in history. Uh, There's never been 80,000 people, uh, only 5% of whom (laughs) uh, would say they're religious in any context, maybe. Uh, Nonetheless, I I look at this uh, event and I see spirituality and I see ritual everywhere. And one of the greatest examples is this temple. When it was built, it wasn't even meant to be a temple. So they invited an, an artist to build an installation. Um, and during the construction, one of the workers uh, died. So they got together and they thought, okay, what should we do? So we stop? so we continue? They decided that what, what he would have liked us to do would be to continue, to finish. And they finished the structure and they gave it no name and they gave it no purpose. It was just a, a large room. And then people heard about the story, and they spontaneously started bringing their own memories of somebody they lost. And uh, at the end of the uh, of the week, they they watched the temple burn, and this had a cathartic uh, effect on people. Uh, so the the next day, uh, the next year, it was named the Temple of Tears. And even later, when it was named the the Temple of Joy, people still kept coming spontaneously, bringing photographs. Um, Memos, notes, letters of somebody they had lost, somebody who had abused them, uh, somebody who broke their heart, and just pinning them on the wall, uh, tens of thousands of them. And then at the end of the, uh, of the event, they gather together, and as the, uh, the temple burns, everybody sings together, or they stay silent, and most of them weep, and they just watch it burn down to the ground. And this seems to have a very cathartic uh, effect uh, on people. So this is there. You have it. This is a morning ritual uh, that emerged spontaneously among a, a crowd that is self-described as one of the least religious crowds ever, and yet their need for ritual, their need for symbolism, uh, is just as great as, as as in any other society
0: we know. Yeah, it's fascinating that. That on the one hand, it's a very secular event in, in the sense that you you mentioned ninety five percent of people claim not to be religious in the traditional sense that we use that word, and yet they're doing all of these very quasi religious religious ritual um, ritual behaviors that that are quasi religious, um, and it's a, it's a fascinating dichotomy. I've sort of often toyed with the idea in my mind that you know thinking by analogy with physics, where you talk about conservation laws, right? Energy is never created or destroyed; it's just transformed might there be some kind of analogous uh, conservation laws that we could think about for psychology and sociology? Like the level of ritual behavior in a society is, is actually a constant, not a variable. And, and the variable is just sort of the form that that behavior takes. And that's why you have things like Burning Man, where on the one hand, in one sense, it's it's secular. But on the other hand, it's just a different form of ritual behavior that we normally associate with organized religion. But in this case, it's just in a, a different kind of container.
1: So I've never heard of this analogy. Did you come up with
0: it? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think so.
1: <laughs> I, I'm, really, I'm really fond of it. I really like this analogy. I think it really captures something uh, fundamental about not just ritual, but about human nature. So that's exactly the way I see those uh, things. So when you look at human societies across time and across space, you will see that um, at first glance, you have tremendous variability. It's the same process that every anthropologist goes through when they visit a field site. And that's why early anthropologists who didn't really visit the field sites, they just got reports from people who had been there for a week or a day. Uh, At first, they're shocked at the differences and they see the others as, as very different, other people as very different. Once you come to know these people better, you realize that we're all essentially the same. We're driven by the same fundamental needs, the same desires, the same goals. And we behave in similar ways, even if those ways vary in their expression in the forms of, of expression. Uh, so based on this, you would expect, you would predict, and I think that's exactly what you, you know, what you find. There will, there will be this preservation of energy in terms of every human society will have certain things like ritual, uh, like music and dancing. And even in cases, even in societies where these are either discouraged or are thought to be abandoned, if you look deeper, you will find that they have, they're, they were still there. They have just taken different forms. And that's what we see today in, in more secularized countries. Uh, people don't have not abandoned uh, ritual. Uh, they just turned to different forms of, of ritual that might we might not immediately recognize them because we're just used to connecting ritual with religion, but they're just as, as ritualized as, as religious rituals are. And they serve some of the same functions.
0: Yeah, and, and I think this also another way to to think about this is you know a lot of people have said things like I forget where this originated, but the idea that there's a god shaped hole in the human heart or in the human brain that even if you're not explicitly religious and a member of an organized religion. The human mind is simply configured in such a way that we're all predisposed to thinking in "quote unquote" religious terms, or to to engage the world in ways that we ordinarily associate with religious belief. And so, you know, we we talked about the Burning Man example, where on the one hand, it's mostly non-religious people in the traditional sense; on the other hand, they're all engaged in the very same kinds of acts that we t- typically associate with religion. Another, you know, thing that I've I've noticed, and many people have noticed, is you know, I think in, in American culture in particular, a lot of secular people, people who don't identify with an organized religion, their, their sort of religious or, or ritualistic impulses just get channeled through other containers and institutions. So for example, you know, religion for a lot of people in America, I think, is politics and their political affiliations. And, and you see this kind of almost... Uh, religious zeal that people have with their politics and you often see it most strongly not always but oftentimes in people who would otherwise consider themselves to be totally secular
1: absolutely and and for that matter you you also see the same thing at the level of the state so in for much of human history in, in in much of the world uh religion was the ultimate well the de facto state so religious um uh leaders could could dictate those rituals and everybody had to take part in. Uh, In in most parts of the world today, you don't have that. But then the state has taken uh, up many of the functions of of those institutions. So we have state rituals everywhere we look. You go to a courtroom and you see everybody rise and and sit in in synchrony, and you see the judge waving a gable, and you see all of the the insignia and the the clothing and and the symbols you go to a sports stadium in america and and um, you hear the the anthem the national anthem at the beginning of each game in many schools people have to uh, to recite the pledge of allegiance uh, universities they held they hold um, graduation ceremonies and every family holds birthday parties and all kinds of other gatherings that they're not the quintessential they're not the um, the stereotypical thing that comes to mind when people ask you whether you perform rituals I often do this with my students. I ask them do you perform rituals regularly? And most of them being in Connecticut, they say no. But then when we start talking about what ritual is, and when I asked, when I start asking them whether they raise their glasses to make a toast or whether they attend birthday parties or weddings or graduations, of course every single one of them regularly attends rituals.
0: So given, you know, given everything that we've talked about, given the adaptive value that you see rituals having, given everything that you've studied, have you created any new rituals or adopted pre-existing rituals in and incorporated those in your day-to-day life, specifically as a result of of everything that you've researched?
1: So, one of the things that I've seen in, in my life, for example, is that um, and it's related to to both the the recent pandemic, but also the the birth of my of my son. Because these two events made, made us realize how much we, we missed our families and how much there was this need for connection at a time where we couldn't travel, they couldn't come and visit us, they couldn't meet their, their grandson. Uh, so we started doing these virtualized meetings. So, for example, we would in, in the past, uh, um, I, I wouldn't have a Christmas uh, dinner with my family. Uh, well, now these last few years, I, I did. And we did it virtually. Uh, and, and we, we even sometimes cooked part of the meal together. We engaged Mm -hmm. in the whole process together in the only way we could, we did it virtually. So these are the kinds of things that you, so when changing circumstances, when you're, when you're missing aspect, when you're highly stressed and when you're missing, um, social connection, those are the times when you will turn to, to virtual.
0: So this has been a fascinating discussion. So thank you very much for your time. Again, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I I read books in a very nonlinear way. I'm usually in the middle of seven or eight or 10 books at a time. It might take me weeks or months or even years to get through one. This is one of the first books in this year that I actually started and finished uh, in less than you know seven or 10 days. And I think it's a testament to to how fascinating it was and how you weaved everything together. Can you just remind everyone one last time who you are, what the book is, when it comes out, and and all that stuff?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm Dimitris Zagalatos, anthropologist and and psychologist at the University of Connecticut. The book is called Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. And it's coming out. It's already out with profile in most of the English-speaking world and um, in September in North America.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks again for your time. I'll I'll put a link to the book in the episode description. So people will have it right there near the top. And I encourage you to check it out. And with that, uh, yeah, thank you for your time.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.